0: Hi guys, welcome back to another episode of Financial Friday on the Nerd Assassin podcast. In today's episode, we're gonna cover book three of the Wealth of Nations. It's titled of the Different Progress of Opulence in Different Nations. In the first chapter, we'll look into how countries naturally grow into wealth. Then in the next chapter, we'll look at how agriculture was hindered in Europe. Then we'll look into how cities and towns grew in Europe. And finally, how the progress of towns led to the growth of agriculture in the country. Starting with chapter one, title of the Natural Progress of Opulence. The main trade for any civilized society is between the town and the country. The country supplies the town with subsistence, food, and the materials for manufacturing. The town repays it, by sending back manufactured produce. This is a mutual, reciprocal, and advantageous to all persons employed. People have made many absurd claims throughout the years, but no one's tried to claim either the country or the town loses in this type of commerce. Subsistence always comes before luxury or convenience. So in the same way, the cultivation and improvement of the country must be prior to the town's growth because the country is the one supplying the town with its subsistence and food. When profits are equal, most men choose to employ capital to the improvement of land over manufacturers or foreign trade. This is because it's more risky to manufacture or trade. You're liable to accidents or injustices, changes in the law, whereas landlording is a more guaranteed return. So next we're going to look into how does a town start up. We talked about how the country would start up first because that's where we need to grow food. But when you're cultivating land, you need many different artificers, whether that's smiths, carpenters, tailors, masons. And they also need each other's work, so they tend to settle together in a small town or village to make trading easy. They're not tied down to a specific land like a farmer's. So they can decide where they want to live but they choose to live next to each other to make trade easy between them. Then, in this town with lots of people, you also start to see butchers and brewers and bakers and retailers start to join the artificers, which grows the town. The country folk end up using the town to exchange their rude produce and subsistence over what they need for themselves, and in exchange they get the manufactured produce from the town. Here's a quote from Adam Smith. Had human institutions, therefore, never disturbed the natural course of things, the progressive wealth and increase of the towns would in every political society be consequential and in proportion to the improvement and cultivation of the territory or country. In North America, this is how we started. We only created the rude produce and even artificers, even the, the butchers, the smiths that were in North America, when they had stock over and above what they needed to maintain themselves, they would invest in cultivating more land. In countries where there's no uncultivated land, normally these tradesmen would use their extra stock to make more goods and be able to sell them to distant lands. So in that way, people will look to invest in cultivating land into agriculture before manufacturing. In looking for somewhere to invest, also manufacturing is preferred to foreign commerce. This is for the same reason that cultivation is preferred to manufacture. It's more secure and it's in your view and command. It's easier for you to see what's going on with your investment. All of this is to say that the natural course of a growing country and of growing stock is to first go to agriculture, then to manufacturing, and last of all to foreign commerce. This natural order has been inverted in many European countries because of the way the government was introduced in those countries. So in the next two chapters, we're gonna take a look at first how agriculture was hindered and then how towns and cities formed. So chapter two is named Of the Discouragement of Agriculture in the Ancient State of Europe after the fall of the Roman Empire. So we're going to go into a little bit of a history lesson about how countries and governments were formed after the fall of Rome. When Rome fell, the once opulent Europe sunk to its slowest state of poverty and barbarism. There were a few great landowners, Another word for that, proprietors, so you'll hear me use those interchangeably as we move on. A few great landowners had all the land. This should have soon been divided again and broken into smaller parcels, just on the natural flow of things. But is was prevented by a few laws that existed in Europe at that time. The first was called prima gentra. Normally, the reason that we have land is like any other good. It's used for subsistence and employment. So therefore, when somebody passes, they tend to split the land equally amongst their children. So each of them can provide for themselves. But at this time in Europe, land was used not just for subsistence and employment, but was more importantly used for power and protection. So it's better in this case not to divide it up. So the owner was like a prince, a judge, a leader, and as long as the land was not divided, it wasn't ruined. So this law of primogeniture said that the land must be passed to the eldest male. If the land got divided up too small, it would end up getting taken over by their their neighbors. The second law that was in place was the law of entails, which further sure up that the land would stay within a family and not be split up into smaller parcels. This other law said that land was bound to a grantees, direct descendants. What this means is if an inheritor died without any heirs, so if my father gave me land and I died before I had any children, instead of this getting passed down and broken up, it then passed back to my dad and given to the next heir. This way it made sure that it stayed in the family. This might not be unreasonable when there are princeships which are ensuring the security of thousands of people, Keeping the land together was how people protected themselves from being raided. However, now that security is from the laws of the country, these laws are absurd. Adam Smith quotes, Laws frequently continue in force long after the circumstances which first gave occasion to them, and which could alone render them reasonable no more. Basically, what these laws ended up doing is making sure that a generation was restrained and regulated to the desires of men from 500 years ago. 500 years ago, somebody in their family decided that this should pass to the eldest males and stay within the family, and my generation couldn't split it up anymore because it still belonged to that guy from 500 years ago. Today, they're only kept around for nobility and honors of the country. They're not kept around in order to secure the residence of that land. So the, we covered why these large amounts of land ended up, being, ended up being owned by a single person. But what does this do to land cultivation? Many acres of uncultivated land be, belonged to these particular families right after the fall of the Roman Empire and passed and stayed. Usually these great proprietors were not great improvers. In the beginning, this was because there was no time. All of their time was spent protecting their citizens from raids and armies. When the laws of the country came around, it gave him leisure time in order to improve the land. But these people were ill-suited for this purpose. Land improvements, or really all commercial products, take somebody who's paying attention to small savings and gains. They're looking at the details to see how they're profitable. But these men were born with great great fortunes. They were just born rich. And usually these are not naturally frugal people. The improvements that he did make on this land tended to be near his estate in order to make it fancy and make himself seem more regal. So he wasn't really investing in improving the land in order to try to make profit from it. He just wanted a nice garden in the back. He wanted a vineyard because... He wanted to show off to the other rich, great proprietors of land. So how did we go from having these large estates with lots of tracts of uncultivated land into having farmers? Even though little was expected of the great proprietors who owned the land, even less was expected from those who lived on it. They were basically slaves of a milder kind. They were thought of as belonging to the land. So if I sold a piece of land, I was selling the person who lived on it with the land. I couldn't sell the person separately, but, and the person could also marry without consent. So this is what I mean by a milder kind of slavery. The people who lived on the land could also not acquire property. So they had no reason to improve the land or to build stock on it. So even though I owned all this land and you were living on your portion, you're going to do as little as possible just to feed yourself and work as little as possible. You're not worried about trying to make a profit because that just ended up going to the owner of the land. After slavery, they ended up becoming more like sharecroppers. So in this time, the landowner would give them seed, cattle, instruments, and everything that was needed in order to produce goods, to produce root produce. And whatever they produced was divided equally between the person who owned the land and the person who farmed. However, in this state, sharecroppers still wouldn't want to cultivate the land. They'd want to produce as much as possible with the land given, but they wouldn't want to improve it because any improvement, any of their own money they invested in improving the land, would still belong to the owner of the land. Eventually, sharecroppers turns into now what we think about farmers. They cultivate the land with their own stock and just pay a lease to the landlord. In this state, they would only improve the farm if the lease was long enough because they needed to recover their investment plus profits before the lease is up. Historically, even though this sounded good, the leases weren't as safe as contracts are in today's day and age. They'd be canceled if the land was sold or the person who was farming it would just be illegally removed by the owner without a lot of recourse for the owner. England had some strong securities for the farmers, but the rest of Europe less so. There was even restrictions on the length of leases, and these restrictions came around long because of the law I talked about earlier, the law of entails. The laws restricting the length of the lease wanted to make sure whoever inherited the property as the owner wasn't restricted by his predecessors from enjoying his land. So if I inherited the land from my father but he had given somebody a hundred year lease on the land. Now I can't just enjoy it and go walk on that land because I've given it to this farmer. Even though this sounded good in the short term, in the long run, this ended up hurting the landlord because it ended up obstructing any improvement done by the farmers. So the land stayed mostly uncultivated. To make it worse for the farmer, the landlord would also make arbitrary rules that were not written in the lease. Something like forcing the farmer to labor on the roads or provide him horses or carriage. Also, the taxes that they would have on the people that were farming were irregular and oppressive. So much so that farmers would make sure not to build up a barn, so that way they'd make sure they looked poor so they wouldn't owe more taxes. Even with the best laws, farmers were still at a disadvantage Because if he cultivated well, his improvement was slowed down by the large share of produce going to rent. So we dug deep onto why farmers were hurt in their agriculture. But what about outside investments besides the people renting the land? The tradesmen, the mechanics, and proprietors had money. But because farming was seen as inferior nobody would spend money to improve farms because it would be a step down from them. So besides small landowners, rich and great farmers did most to improve the land. Now let's look at what happened with cities in the same time frame. After the fall of Rome, towns were in a similar state as the country. They were in this barbarous raiding state, unsecure. Land properties tend to live inside fortified castles. The towns had tradesmen and mechanics who essentially acted like servants, just serving the owner of the land. Tradesmen would travel from town to town peddling and pay a passage tax. However, the townsfolks, another term for that that I've seen written in this book a lot is burghers, they gained their liberty and independence much sooner than the country. The king would lend out the land, and he would take either a burger with a wealthy citizen of the town, or the sheriff would collect rent from the people. In this way, they were free from the king's officers. And it became practice soon after. Instead of lending it for a certain term on the lease, they would lend it to a farmer for a perpetual fee. So essentially, you don't own the land, but your fee will stay the same for every year, as long as you want to have it. The burghers also tended to become the government and judge for their territory, so they had their own walls and armies. You might ask, why would the king give away all of this power by giving these perpetual leases to some wealthy citizens of the town? And this is because no country was able to protect itself from border to border. They needed somebody in that territory to give them security because the king's armies weren't big enough to be able to protect all of England or all of France also the kings and the burghers both had a hatred and a fear of lords the lord saw burghers as freed slaves on a different order than them by granting power and security and independence to the burghers the king became allies with them And the perpetual rent made sure they didn't fear oppression from either raised rent or giving the land to a new farmer once the king suppressed the lords. The more uneasy the relationship the princes had with the lords, the more freeing the prince was with the bergs. Eventually, city militias were as strong as the country's armies and usually stronger than neighboring lords. Some countries this became so much so that the cities conquered nobility and became city-states. Some examples of these in Europe was Switzerland or Italy. Others, like France and England, they at least were strong enough to make sure that the king could charge no more than the stated farm rent that they originally gave as perpetual rent. All of this is to say that order and good government with liberty and security for the individuals was established in cities. This was all done during the time when the country was still exposed to violence. While in the state of violence, the country was satisfied with just subsistence, just enough to feed my family. But in security of the towns, townsfolks would exert themselves to better their their condition and acquire more than just necessities. Even if a country folk could hide some of their stock from their master, in order to keep it for themselves, they would flee to a city and use it there. In this way, cities grew faster than country or agriculture. But if you remember in the first chapter, we talked about how cities are dependent on the countryside for their subsistence. So how could these cities outgrow their neighboring, their neighboring agriculture? And that's because the cities that grew fast were on either coasts or rivers. So they're not dependent on their neighboring countries. The towns could trade with foreign commerce in order to bring in corn or meat. Trading cities imported some improved and expensive luxuries from richer countries by exchanging their ro- rude produce, such as the wool in England. And this trade brought a taste for finer things. The demand eventually led to industrious people establishing the manufacture in their own country. Every country has some sort of manufacturing. Even a country that we think of without manufacturing still makes their own clothing and furniture. It's just not exported to other countries. So we might say there's not a lot of manufacturing in a poor country, but usually the need makes manufacturing happen even more there than a rich one. A rich country can import it all and afford to pay for it. In general, there are two ways that manufacturing starts in a country. The first one is the one that we just covered, merchants imitating foreign goods. In this case, they usually use foreign materials. They would import silk or something similar and recreate the fancy clothing that they used to buy from abroad. The other way is they can grow naturally by refinement. In this case, they tend to use local materials. And usually this type of manufacturing starts far from the seacoast and more inland. In these inland areas, there's naturally fertile and easy cultivated land. So they produce a large surplus of what they need for their necessities. But they can't just trade it because land carriage is so expensive. This abundance makes the cost of living cheap, and more men tend to settle in that neighborhood. These men end up manufacturing the rude produce into more finished goods, which gives the cultivators who are producing it a better price for their surplus, and then the refined and improved products are worth more per pound to make land carriage possible. One example is eight pounds of fine cloth is the same price as 80 pounds of wool or several thousand pounds of corn. So the more I can manufacture it inland, the easier it is for carriage to happen. So that's the second way that countries start manufacturing. So we looked at the natural order of things was for agriculture to come first, then manufacture, then foreign commerce. But this violence that was happening in the country while the towns had security caused the towns of Europe to grow in wealth faster than the countryside. So in this last chapter, chapter four, we're going to look at how the commerce of the towns contributed to the improvement of the country. There are three ways the increased riches of commercial and manufacturing towns contributed to the improvement and cultivation of the country. The first one is a town is a great and ready market for the rude produce. This further encourages cultivation happening in the countryside. The second, wealthy city folk started buying land in the country. And generally, a wealthy manufacturer is a great improver. They already have a mind for employing money to profitable projects. And a merchant tends to be more bold, while a country gentleman tends to be a timid undertaker. Because they're just used to thinking about, I can invest this Big amount of capital and eventually I'll see a return on it. But the most important effect, the third one, is the towns introduced order. They gave liberty and security of individuals in the countryside through government. So let's go through how we went from Burgers or Lords having complete control to stability and security for individuals. Before there was foreign commerce, these wealthy proprietors we talked about in the last couple chapters, they still have a surplus of goods, and the only way they can use them is to maintain and feed hundreds to thousands of men. In this way, the people that lived on the land depended on the wealthy proprietor in order to feed themselves, so they ended up obeying him. Someone who rented their land and only was able to produce enough on the land to feed himself, was in the same position. In this way, the wealthy proprietor had a lot of power, they became judges and army leaders, and even the king had little authority over them. Really, the king's only authority was to coordinate these ancient barons against common enemies. But once they could trade the surplus away, instead of consuming it by feeding all of these men, they could consume it for themselves and gain wealth for themselves instead of feeding others. They could buy trinkets and diamonds instead of feeding thousands of men. This feeding of thousands of men, you can think of when you watch a TV show where they had a great mess hall where they would throw banquets and f- every day they would feed all of these people. But once they started f- finding a way they consume the wealth for themselves, they no longer were worried about controlling all these others, and with it, they lost their authority and power. This is how artificers and manufacturers became independent. Originally, somebody might directly maintain 20 men by being the one to feed them, and they became dependent on him. But indirectly, now that there's foreign commerce, he maintains much more than he would have in ancient times. But everything he buys only supports a small amount of each of these people. So in this way, they became less dependent dependent on any one man and gained their independence by being able to sell these manufactured goods to a lot of wealthy men instead of being a smith that only works for the one landowner. And then also farmers became independent. Now that farmers weren't feeding hundreds of men who weren't really necessary, they became more efficient, which meant there was greater profits to the landowner. But his greed made him desire more goods, so he wanted to raise the rents of the land. He was renting out this land to all these farmers and raising the rent prices, in order that he can buy more of these trinkets we talked about. However, in the present state of the land, in this sort of uncultivated state, the farmers couldn't afford to pay higher and higher rents. The tenants agreed to have a higher rent if they could have a longer term of lease, which would give them enough time to recover the profit for improving the land. Here's a quote from Adam Smith that kind of sums this up. This first part of the chapter up. Having sold their birthright in the wanton of plenty for trinkets and babbles fitter to be the paythings of children than the serious pursuits of men, they became as in- insignificant as any sub- substantially anyone in the city. Basically, what we're trying to say is the wealthy proprietors gave up all of their power because they just wanted some childish playthings. A revolution that brought public happiness happened for the people with no one involved actually wanting to bring public happiness. The proprietors just had their childish vanity of wanting more things for themselves, and the merchants were just selfish and industrious trying to make money. But together they brought independence and security to both manufacturers and farmers. However, this course of things, of towns improving the country, is contrary to the natural course of things that we covered in that first chapter, which makes this improvement slow and uncertain. This is why the wealth of Europe grew slowly over centuries, while North America was able to grow its wealth quickly. Remember we talked about the laws of Europe, the laws of entails and, and primogeniture that prevented estates from being broken up? This hinders the number of small proprietors from growing. You end up with only these large proprietor, proprietors who own great estates. But a small proprietor knows every part of his territory and is generally, of all improvers, the most industrious, the most intelligent, and the most successful. There's not a lot of land brought to market, which causes this monopoly high prices and prevents capital from being employed into cultivation. If the landed estates were divided equally among the children upon death, more would be sold and there'd be people that would be willing to buy it and improve it as an investment. Out of the countries in 18th century Europe, England encouraged agriculture more than most. They'd give bounties for exporting corn, or prohibit the import of cattle, there was a good intention among their leaders to promote agriculture directly, on top of the indirect agriculture that we talked about in the, in the beginning of this chapter. But much more important than any of these was that security and independence. The capital that's acquired to a country through commerce and manufacturing is precarious and uncertain. It's not really tied down and secured to the country until there's some cultivation or improvement of land. If I'm doing a lot of trading and manufacturing and I get mad at the country, I can move all my capital and all my industry from one country to another. But once I've started building buildings or have the solidness of agriculture, it cannot be destroyed except by hostile barbarous raids lasting for centuries. So in this book, we covered what's the natural course for a country to take to grow wealth and how Europe was still able to grow even though they inverted the natural order. Over the next few episodes of the podcast, I'm going to cover book four of Wealth of Nations. Here, Adam Smith looks at the different political systems and rules trying to show how their effect on wealth happens for both individuals and the country itself. Feel free to subscribe to the podcast or if you want to continue the conversation, reach out to me on LinkedIn or Twitter at The Nerd Assassin. Until then, have a nice rest of your week.